We were starting 2011, and uh, we are starting an emphasis on holiness. So what I want you to do as we begin is turn to someone and say this, God does not want all of you. I mean, God does want all of you. Sorry, God does not want part of you. That's a different message. God doesn't want all of you. He just wants a little bit of you. This is why the congregation is supposed to hold elders accountable. In case they start preaching lies. All right, let's try it again. Turn to someone next to you and say, God does not want part of you, but all of you. All right. Now what I want you to do is connect with someone in a different section from you. Connect eyes with them. You never look at them. You always look at the screens or somewhere else. Connect with someone. Wave to them. All right. Make sure you connect with someone. Here's what I want you to say. Ready? God does not want part of Cross Point. But all of Cross Point. All right, good. All right. Don't be afraid to look back at them later. Make sure they're awake still in the sermon. All right. One more time. I want you to turn to someone next to you and say this My sin affects us. All right. You get that? Let's say that all together again. My sin affects us. How many of you have ever seen a chain link? For instance, on. Arabella's swing set, we, uh, the swings are hanging, these links are holding them. You know what I'm, I'm talking about? I was going to bring one this morning, but I couldn't detach the swings. So you'll have to use your vivid imagination. Let me ask a couple questions. Which link is most important in those chains? All of them, right? They are all equally important. Let me ask another question. How strong is the entire chain? Good. You people watch TV, so you know your answers, right? You're only as strong as the... Weakest link, right? So that gets me to an interesting question for us this morning. How holy is Crosspoint? And the answer is we are only as holy as our least obedient member. We are only as holy as our least obedient member. Now, which one of you is the least obedient? Let's know. So Dirk. I'm right there with you, brother. We could all probably be candidates for this, right? The problem becomes when we begin to think individually of of just ourselves, and that our obedience or disobedience only has consequences for us. We're going to see this morning in Joshua 7. I want you to turn there. We are uh, walking through a couple sermons as we uh, will begin a 40-day prayer emphasis today. I'll share more about that. We're moving towards what's called a solemn assembly on February 20th. But we're beginning with a couple sermons on, uh, on holiness as we start 2011. And if if we had to put Joshua 7 in a sentence, I've done it there in the outline for you, but if you had to sum up this chapter in a sentence, it would be simply this. Achan's sin brought trouble on his family and his nation because no sin is inconsequential in nor hidden from God's eyes. I'm sure there were some commas I needed to add in there, but uh, I'll let you do that. But if we had to take what we're learning today in, in, in chapter 7, and put it in a sentence, Achan's sin brought trouble on his family and his nation because no sin is inconsequential in God's eyes, nor is it hidden from God's eyes. God sees them all, and none of them are small. So as we encounter this passage, I'm praying that God reminds us that no sin is small to God. No sin is small to God, friend. And number two, my individual sins may have corporate consequences for all of us. 
My individual sins may have corporate consequences for all of us. We're going to read just one verse, chapter 7, verse 1. I'll ask you to stand with me, and we'll read from Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Reading from the ESV, here's what is recorded. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Father, we thank you for this text. We pray again for your spirit to teach us from your word. God, I pray that we would uh, take holiness very serious, and we would understand that since we are one body, one family, that our obedience impacts one another, and that we are only as holy corporately as our least obedient member. Many of us would readily sign up and say, that may be me. So, Father, would you speak a word to us today? It's in your name we pray. Amen. I would say to us that good exposition not only teaches us the Bible, but teaches us how to study the Bible. When you have a pastor who preaches what we call expository messages, exposing the text of the message, the the sermon text is the sermon. And the meaning of the text is the point of the sermon. Good exposition not only teaches us the word, but teaches us how to study the word. Now, I'm not going to presume that what I'm about to do is good or will teach you anything. But I have arranged the outline today with a study uh, mindset uh, that we would take a text and say, what's here and what can we benefit from there? And so asking in the beginning just some observation questions and and then ultimately moving to application. So we're going to see what's here And then we're going to say, well, what does that have to do with my life? And so as we begin, we begin with the question of what's happening at this point in Scripture. How many of you know that we did not preach Joshua 6 last week? How many of you remember that? All right. Does anyone remember where we were last week? Good. First Peter. Thank you, Cotty. All right. That's encouraging. Already for pastor. Check. All right. Someone. One person remembered. Thank you, Lord. So... We are not obviously walking through Joshua, and as we come into Joshua, context is important, and we want to grasp what's happening here. If we're going to grasp what's happening in Joshua, we actually have to go back to Genesis. So hold your place in Joshua. Turn back to the left to Genesis 15, all right? Because what's happening in Joshua 6, 7, all of it, is importantly, uh, is intimately related to Genesis 15, Way back in the day, uh, the very first Jew who was a Gentile, his name was Abram. Abram. And God made a covenant with Abram, right? And uh, we begin to see in Genesis 15, verse 12, a little bit about this covenant. And here's what it says. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Does anyone remember where that land was? It was Egypt. God's people went and they sojourned in Egypt and they were slaves. They were servants there. But then God continues in verse 14, says, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Is that true? Did that occur? 
We know that as the Israelites walked out of Egypt, they walked out with the Egyptian silver and gold and all kinds of things, and that God brought judgment on the Egyptians with the ten plagues and the punishment that occurred that went along with these, that God was bringing judgment on the Egyptian nation. So either God is really lucky or he knows what's coming. Which one do you think? All right, good. He knows what's coming. Not only does he know he plans what's coming, and not only does he plan, friends, he carries out what's coming. He's carrying this out. And so it says in verse 15, as for yourself, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, who's the they? Who's the they? His descendants, right? They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That last phrase is very important. What's happening in the big context of Joshua is God promised his people a place. And so while they sojourned in Egypt, and part of that was for the fact that they would have provision. You remember when Joseph's brothers actually came down and there was a great famine in the land. But God had Joseph in a place that would provide for his family. Then ultimately, those 12 brothers would multiply, right? 70 people moved into Egypt that were considered Israelites. But when they walked out, they would say over a million, right? Over a million walked out. Well, God is wanting to take them to their to the place. But we know what happened is when God led them there, the people were too scared to go in. They didn't trust God. And so there was a whole generation that had to walk around for how many years? 40 years. And we've talked about, we don't want to be a generation walking around in a wilderness waiting to die. We want to be a generation that if God tr- says go, we trust him and we go forward wherever he says. And our confidence is not in us. Our confidence is in him. My confidence in Crosspoint moving forward in this new chapter is not in me. My confidence is the Lord will build his church, friends. The Lord has a plan. And so if he says go, he says do this, we want to trust that and we want to move forward. And so what happens, that generation walks around until they die. Now this is a generation that's walking in. So in the big redemptive history, what's going on is God is keeping his promise to Abram. God is keeping his promise to Abram, and that's what's happening in Joshua. God is taking his people into his land. In the immediate context, who is leading them? Is it Moses who's leading God's people? No. Moses acted disobediently, and so God withheld the promised land from Moses. So who is it that's leading the people into this promised land? Who's leading the Israelites at this point? Joshua. That's right. If you struggle, just look at the top of the book. All right, so Joshua. Joshua is leading them, and... The very first place that they move, as they move into, do you remember the name of the place? And look back in chapter 6, if you need a, a, a helpline here. What was that place? Jericho. And any of you remember the songs about, there were songs growing up as little children, right? The, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, right? You know, this is the most interesting uh, military strategy. God pulls Joshua to the side and he says, I don't need you to do anything but march around, blow your horns and yell. And God says, I'll take care of it. I'll knock the walls down. And so I just imagine as Joshua relayed that to the strategic military leaders, here's the plan. We're going to march around. The priests are going to blow trumpets and then yell real loud. We're going to do it once a day. And then on the last day, we're going to do it seven days, so seven times. So rest up. And so there's this incredible plan and, and it happens. And this is, the, this is the amazing thing about our God. Remember what we always study around Christmas with Luke. For nothing will be, what? Impossible with God. Man, God doesn't need tanks, friends. God is sovereign. God is omnipotent. God is king. And if he wants walls to come down, he can use priests blowing trumpets and people yelling. 
I would encourage you, maybe we should try that around the bubble. See what happens. See, if we yell, what happens? Don't do it. It might pop. So we need it. All right. Our building fund is not sufficient yet. So we, let's, let's, not, let's not do that. So what's happened in Joshua 6, God has given his people Jericho. Now, what we're going to find out is God also gave them specific instructions before they went in. And not all of them obeyed those instructions. Does anyone have an idea the name of the guy who did not follow the instructions? Achan. Good. You guys are sharp this morning. Which gets us then to the second question. Who is Achan? If you look in chapter 7, verse 1, here's what we know about Achan. He is the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah. Is there anyone else you know that would ultimately be of the tribe of Judah? Who? Good. Y'all don't know anyone else but Jesus and Judah, right? Y'all like, well, I was in Sunday school, the line of the tribe of Judah. That's all I need to know. You don't know anyone else in Judah. Well, I don't either, actually. But we can know that Achan and Jesus, could they be more different? No, they're, they're polar opposites. But we know that, uh, that Achan is of the tribe of Judah. Now, I don't know anything about his dad, his granddad, or his great-granddad. But maybe if we use that little computer program with the tree leaf, you know, and you trace your family heritage, we could find something out about that. I don't want to do it. Here's what we need to know. Who is Achan? One thing about Achan is he is a guy who caused a heap of trouble. And I'm sorry, I, I, my wife, if she, she's in the nursery, uh, she would say that's a pawpaw joke uh, because we're going to see stones get heaped on Achan. And so in the beginning, Achan is a guy who caused a heap of trouble. That's only a, a poor pastoral joke. I'll move on now. Here's what you want to say to someone next to you. Achan is a guy who I want to learn from but not follow. All right. Say it one more time. Achan is a guy who I want to learn from, but not follow. We don't want to follow Achan. So what's happening at this point of Scripture, God is leading his people into the land. He's given them the first place, Jericho. But there was one that didn't follow all of God's instructions, and he is going to bring trouble on himself, on his family, and on his nation. So that gets us to the third uh, question in our outline. What did Achan do? And there are three things that Achan did. The very first thing is he stole by robbing God. Look back in chapter 6 and verse 16. These are the specific instructions that were given. In chapter 6, verse 16 of Joshua. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. That's a whole other story, but I'll leave it to you to go back and check that out this afternoon. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. There's some very clear instructions that are given. Now let me help you one more time. Remember the last phrase that God told Abram? The, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. What God is doing is he's using Israel as his instrument of justice, his instrument of judgment on these people in the Canaanites, in the, in the land of Canaan. Friends, these Canaanites aren't innocent. None of us are innocent. They have gone away from God. They have disobeyed God. They were not God's people. And so God is using the Israelites as his instrument of justice on them, which is why the city was devoted to destruction. Because God is holy, one of the things that would be is all these things that weren't of him, one of the things that would be in order to 
cause his holiness to be glorified with these, uh, these things that were unholy would be destroyed. And so God's plan for Jericho is all these things that are unholy, it's going to all be destroyed, except for the silver, the gold, and every vessel of bronze and iron there to go to the treasury of the Lord. How many of you would say these seem like pretty clear instructions? How many of you say there's not, not a lot of gray matter here? You're, it's pretty clear, all right? Well, what Achan does... You'll find out in chapter 7, verse 21. Here's what Achan does. Look at what he says in his own words, chapter 7, verse 21. The walls have gone down, and Achan is in Jericho. They're running in like everyone else is. Wah! Right? And then Achan's like, look at all this stuff. And here's what he says in 21. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, Then I coveted them and took them, and see they're hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So what Achan does is ultimately he steals from God. These things were supposed to be God's. They were supposed to go into his treasury. Achan sees them, wants them, he steals from them, and then buries them under his tent. FDIC didn't exist at that point, so he didn't have another place he could store. They would commonly bury things in the ground. But he, the, one of the first things he does, he steals by rubbing God. But I want to take you to another, another level of what Achan does. Achan actually cheats on God. Look back in chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel, and the next phrase that I have in the ESV says, broke, what's the next word? Faith. It says in the ESV here, but the people of Israel broke faith. The idea behind that word is adultery. The idea behind that word is adultery. The term's used often to describe a wife's adultery on a husband. And so what Achan does is not only does he steal, which would have been a breaking of the Eighth Commandment, the bigger picture here is Achan cheats on God. Achan has an affair on God. It was a betrayal of trust that existed between two parties. In taking the devoted things, Achan was acting in a way that broke the fundamental covenantal relationship between God and Israel. The bottom line is Achan pursued another object of affection. Achan pursued another object of affection, which in the end really breaks the first commandment, right? You shall have no other, what? Gods. Achan has broken that first, first commandment with what he's done. He's had an affair. I wonder, friends, if you and I see sin as adultery. I wonder if you and I see it for the wretchedness that it is, that it is a, a cheating on our, on our God. If we are the bride of Christ, then we must see sin as he sees it. And here, don't miss the word. It's not just theft, it's adultery. It's a breaking of a covenant relationship that has occurred. It's a big deal. But I want to take you even deeper than this. If you look in the, back in 21, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I, do you see the next word there? What is it? Coveted them. Then I coveted them. Here's the biggest root issue of what Achan does. He wants these items more than he wants God. This is the root sin that Achan has done. Though he has stolen, yes, he's robbed from God what was his. He's had an affair. This sin is considered an affair. It's adultery. But the root issue is this covetousness. He wanted something more than he wanted God. And in essence, when you think about the Ten Commandments, the first one says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the tenth one is, you shall not covet they form bookends, really the same idea. You shouldn't want anything more than you want God. You shouldn't want anything more than you want God. The words in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for desire and the Hebrew word for covet, there's really no, no difference. 
between the Hebrew word for desire and the Hebrew word for covet. Coveting means desiring something too much. And too much is measured by how that desiring compares to desiring God. How do I know if I want that too much? Do you want it more than you want God? Then you want it too much. Then now you're coveting it. You are wanting it. Your affections are set here. If desiring leads you away from God rather than closer to God, it's sin, friends. If this that I want is leading me away from God rather than closer to God, then it's sin. Not coveting means not desiring anything in a way that diminishes God as our supreme treasure. In this case, Achan desires gold and silver and this shiny garment. Unlike us, we don't like shiny garments, do we? There's nothing at the Mall of Louisiana that attracts our attention. We don't like shiny Macs and shiny iPads, do we? We see them for what they are. We don't like shiny cars. We don't like shiny anything, right? Well, desiring these things ultimately... Not just coveting, friends. It's idolatry. There's something else where we're setting our hearts. And I don't know how many of our folks were in Revelation this morning. We're studying Revelation in our Bible study times and would invite all of you if you're not there. Look, we don't know all the answers about Revelation, but there's some things we can know, and it's been a great study. And in Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21, today in our study, it will say that these people, they see these judgments of God, but they don't repent. And it says that they still want to worship these idols that don't see and don't hear and don't move. And it's always interesting in, in the Old Testament, God says, you, you're leaving me for something that can't even walk on its own. You're leaving me for something you have to carry around. You're leaving me for something that can't even respond to you. That's idolatry, friends. And what we want is to be careful that uh, we set our eyes in a different place. I, I would point out a parallel with this. Achan says, I saw and I coveted. In 21, I saw and I coveted. Does anyone else know where this formula was also found in Scripture? In Genesis with Eve. It's the same formula, friends. I saw and I coveted, which brings me to a, a very important question this morning is, where are we setting our eyes? Where are we setting our eyes? Do you remember Psalm 1611? In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Friends, we want to set our eyes on the place where true joy is. We want to set our eyes on the place and the person where true pleasure is, and that's in Christ. That's in our incredible God. All right, that brings us then to a very important question. What could have kept Achan from sinning? And I've put there in your outline, there under question number four is, remembering the Lord's command. Remembering the Lord's command. If, if Achan had just remembered what he was told right before they went in, uh, it would have helped him. I've put a note there for you. God's word prepares us for the places we've never been before and the places we visit often. God's word prepares us for the places we've never been before and the places that we visit often. I'm guessing that Achan had never been to Jericho. I'm guessing that Achan had never been inside the walls of Jericho. But God knew what was waiting on Achan. God knew what was waiting on all of them, and God gives them the word that would prepare them for how to navigate that entire event. But Achan, however, disregards the clear direction. The same thing happens, I won't make you turn there, but the same thing happens in Exodus 34, when God is giving the covenant to Israel. And he says, look, when you go into this new land, be careful that you don't make a covenant with the people because what's going to happen is they're going to send their daughters your way. They're going to prostitute their daughters to you. And then you're going to connect with their daughters. And then before you know it, they're going to lead you to their feasts and to worshiping their gods. 
All right? So God clearly lays this out in Exodus 34. When you move into Numbers 25, what's really interesting is God has been leading his people in victory. They conquer a king named Sihon. They conquer a king named Og. And they're moving along. Well, Balak is the third third uh, king. And when he sees what happened to Sihon and Og, he's a little bit smarter. And Balak hires a prophet whose name is, anyone remember? Balaam. He hires Balaam. And that's really interesting because that's where, you know, we see Shrek in the Bible. A donkey talks and all this kind of stuff. It's interesting, right? What Balaam does, he's a little bit smarter. He doesn't want to go out and fight. He realizes Sihon and Og got taken out. So Balaam says, here's another thing that we can do. And they send the women in. And the leaders of Israel ignore what God told them in Exodus 34. And because of that, in Numbers 25, 25,000 people die in one day. They die in one day. How many of you have seen the commercials with the bank that has the little green arrow path? Have you seen those commercials on TV? Friends, we should think of God's word in some, uh, in some ways very similar to that. That if we stay on that path, God's word is leading us on the very best route. God's path is preparing us even for the places that we've not been before. There may be suffering. There may be things that come. There may be temptations that we've never experienced. God's word will keep us on the path if we would just remember it. David says, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I don't sin against you. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. And so, friends, if, if he had uh, followed what was clearly given, the clear instructions, God was trying to prepare Achan before he went into Jericho. If Achan would have just trusted God to know best, then he would not have succumbed to this deviating from God's word shows we don't trust God to know what's best. Anytime we deviate, we say to God, I've got this. You, you don't really know about these things. These are new developments. And it's pretty tough to tell the ancient of days that. Let's ask another question in question five. What were the consequences of Achan's rebellion? Though Achan is going to be put to death, friends, the most important consequence is that God threatens not to go forward with the people. You're going to find in the passage, he says in 7 and seven, verse 12, Therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Friends, I would submit to you, this is the greatest consequence of the sin, that God would not go forward with them. God is saying, until you deal with this sin, I'm not taking one more step with you. Why? Because that's how important holiness is to God, friends. God doesn't hide. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't discreetly push it under the mat. And the same thing he does in Exodus 33 with Moses. And Moses' response is, if you don't go with us, I, we, we need not go. I don't want to go. And God says, I can't go with you until you deal with this issue. It's interesting that God is using Israel as instruments of justice. I told you that earlier. He's using Israel as instruments of justice on the Canaanites. He's punishing the Canaanites for their sin. He is not going to ignore the sin in his own people. He's not going to ignore sin in his own people. There are no exceptions. In case there's anyone in the room here who thinks right now, I'm getting away with this. Friends, you will never get away with it. There are no exceptions to disobedience. And so the greatest consequence that Achan's sin brings on Israel, God says, I'm not going forward with you. 
I'm not going forward with you. Friends, that's the most devastating thing that could ever be said. Here's a second consequence. Achan's sin brought guilt on Israel as a whole. Look in 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. And you see the very ending sentence of 7-1. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And then if you look down in verses 10 and 11, the Lord says to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. And the word transgress means cross the line. They have crossed the line with my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Is God holding Achan solely responsible here? No, he's holding Israel. And so one of the consequences of Achan's sin is he's brought guilt on the entire community. He's brought guilt on Israel as a whole. And that's where we want to be reminded, friends, sin in the camp matters. Now, what I don't know from this passage is, did anybody know? Was anyone running alongside him and saw him take that shimmering garment and tuck it in? It was like, ooh, you should have done that, you know? If so, they should have knocked him out, right? And said, what are you doing? And the reason being because God says, if you do this, you will bring trouble on us. If you do this, there is a consequence for your disobedience. And not only have I brought trouble on Jericho, but I will bring the same trouble on you if you are disobedient. And so someone running beside him should have said, I'm going to knock you out. They should have done it. I don't know if they knew or not. I don't know how much his family knew. I mean, if there's this big hump in the middle of your carpet of your tent, you'd be like, well, where did that come from, right? You would think about these things. So I don't know exactly. But I do know that the New Testament gives us a picture. The New Testament in 1 Corinthians 5 says that there was a man in the congregation there at Corinth that was having improper relations with his stepmother. And he says, Paul writes to the church of Corinth and he says, and you guys aren't doing anything about it. And he says, this is worse than even what the pagans do. So I don't know exactly if how many people in Israel knew, although they're being held accountable, but I know in Corinth, Paul says you did know. And that's where I would want to remind us, friends, we are accountable to one another. We are accountable to one another. If there is known sin in our lives, we can't put our head in the sand and hope it goes away. We have responsibilities, as we saw in our series in Galatians, to restore the one that's in sin. We don't condemn them. We don't say, get out of here. No, we run to them and we say, let's deal with this together. Let's deal with this together. But we have accountability. We cannot ignore sin. And I would submit to you, friends, that there are not enough congregations that deal with sin in the lives of their members. If there were, there would be more churches that practice church discipline for the glory of God and there would be healthier churches, and we would have the same attitude towards sin as God does. And I would say across the board, there's not enough. We ignore it and hope it goes away. It doesn't go away, friends. It goes from bad to worse. It goes from bad to worse. Achan's sin brought guilt on Israel as a whole. Here's another consequence. Achan's sin caused Israel to suffer. If you look in your text, when they move from Jericho, the next place is a little bitty village called Ai. They have about 12,000 people that are there. I don't know. I guess that's a little bitty today. It's maybe the size of rose pine. I, I don't know some of these places. But uh, what happens is they don't send their whole army. And there's some issues with this that would be for another sermon. But it says in verse 4, about 3,000 men went up from there and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Now let's review. 
How many Israelites died in the Battle of Jericho? Zero. How many died in their attempt to take over Ai? 36. And the difference is sin. One of the consequences of Achan's sin, 36 of his brothers died. 36 of his brothers were put to death by the men of Ai. Not only that, they have to retreat. And it says at the end of verse 5, the hearts of the people melted. Which people? The Israelites. The Israelites are now like the Canaanites, and they're scared. They hadn't been scared, but this is what sin does when it comes in the camp. It causes this fear, and now they're afraid. And then if you look in verse 12, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Because of Achan's sin, it affected these people that were around him, his brothers. It affected the entire nation. It caused them to suffer. Let me move to the next one then quickly. Achan's sin caused his family to suffer. First of all, it caused his family to be called out in front of all of Israel. How many of you know that was an awkward day? All right, let's look at what happens. In verse 16 of chapter 7, it says, Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerites were taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now, you should know that another translation of the phrase taken is caught. Caught. It's caught there, and it's intentional of the writer. Uh, that You're not getting away with this, Achan. It's being pointed out. Now, you know one of the problems is, how many of you know Achan knew what was coming when they all got called out that day? Achan knew what was coming. And Achan could have stopped that by coming forward and saying, it's me. It's me. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that, which I think is part of why the full brunt of the judgment came on him. Because he wasn't repenting. He wasn't bringing it forth. He had to be caught in his sin. Friend, we don't want to be caught. All right, We want to be forthcoming with our sin to the Lord. We want to repent quickly. We don't want to hide and think, he won't find me. With all these people. What did Achan sin do? It caused his family to be called out in front of all of Israel. And also caused him to be stoned to death. Look at the result. Achan obviously confesses. Here's where it is. They send messengers. They go find the goods. They bring it back. And what happens is, verse 24, Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had, and they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. We'll talk about this in just a moment, but suffice it to say, it caused his family to suffer. Not only did Achan cause his own death, it caused the death of his family as well. One other thing that I would point out is Achan's sin, one of the consequences is it contributes to Joshua questioning God. Achan's sin contributes to Joshua questioning God. Now, Joshua is going to have to deal with this himself as well. But when the report comes back that the 36 men have died and that the Israelites have actually had to flee, I want you to see Joshua's reaction. In verse 6, it says this, Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. 
O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And he asked a great question at the end. The problem are the initial questions. And why I say one of the consequences of Achan's decisions, one of, the, one of these consequences is it's causing Joshua to question God. You realize the issue is not with God. The problem's with Israel. And that's where I wonder with Joshua, did that never factor in? When something was wrong, the immediate place that Joshua went was God. And it was like, what have you done? When God's like, what have you done? And friends, we don't want to be that camp. If the relationship is off between us and God, I'm pretty sure it's not his fault. We ought to be the ones who stop and say, what have I done? Where am I in this process? Am I completely yielded? Another thing is that he, look at Joshua's statement. This is really funny to me. He says, would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. And I love that. And I'm like, Really? You would have really wanted to camp across and just see the promised land and be like, look at all that milk and honey. Look at it. Let's just look, let's just stay over here, but look at that over Woo, that's nice. And he's saying, would that we have been content instead of coming in here and dealing with all this if we had just been happy where we were. But let me pause and, and ask a question. You remember what the other side of the Jordan was called? What was it called? The what? The wilderness. Were they content in the wilderness? No. When they were in the wilderness, where did they want to be? Back in Egypt, where they would have died, right? It's funny how our memories work this way, right? If we'd only been content to be back there, you weren't content there, Joshua. Your people weren't content there. It's amazing what sin does and then how our processes get off. Friends, if there's sin, uh, we, we don't want to first question God. We should probably ask God to show us and point out where have we gone wrong. Show me. The other thing is, friends, don't ever be content to dwell on the other side of the Jordan. Let's move into the full plan that God has for us. All right, so now let me bring the message to its point of application. What do we do with this? Joshua 6 is an interesting story and certainly consequences that we see here. We've walked through it, Joshua 7, Joshua 6 and 7, we've walked through it here, but what do we do with it? And here are some points of application that I've put on your outline that we should take away from Joshua 7. The first is this. Whatever we desire more than God ultimately costs us more than it's worth. Whatever we desire more than God ultimately costs us more than it's worth. How many of you think if Achan could speak to us today, which he is, if you're listening, Achan is speaking to us today. How many of you think if he could speak, he would say the items he stole were not worth what they cost his family and nation? Does anyone agree with that? Let me ask a second question. How many of those items does Achan have today? None of them. So let me ask a third question. Is the sin we choose worth it? Is the sin we choose worth it? Is it worth what it's costing your marriage? Is it worth what it's costing your relationship with your children? Is it worth what it's costing your relationship with your parents? Is it worth what it's costing your relationship with Crosspoint? Is it worth what it's costing your relationship with Christ? It's not, friends. So let us remember, whatever we desire, that word from Achan here, covet, desire, whatever we desire more than God ultimately costs us more than it's worth. Number two, we cannot progress in sin and holiness simultaneously. Can we head north and south at the same time? (laughs) No. 
Neither, friend, can we head deeper with Christ and away from Christ at the same time. And sin is always away from Christ. We cannot progress in sin and holiness simultaneously. God is not kidding when it comes to holiness. God is intensely serious. And in his eyes, there is no small sin. And I would point out, because he loves us, he doesn't ignore sin. Now, how many of you know you try to ignore it? You're talking to someone and they, their breath is not fresh. You try to ignore it, right? If someone has something on their face, you try to ignore it, and then you let them get in the car, and they realize they've talked to you the whole time without on your face, well, on their face. You know, we, we try to ignore it. Even as parents, sometimes if our children do something, sometimes we want to look away. Friends, God doesn't look away. God does not ignore disobedience in his children, and his desire is for immediate obedience. I wonder if we view sin the same way God does deal with disobedience immediately today today, friends don't walk out of fear it was so serious to god that he said i'm not going to take another step with you until you deal with this friends he says the same things to us today you can't progress in him and sin at the same time number three we may hide sin from those around us but never from god you may hide some sin from us friends but you won't get away with it neither will i none of it is going to be hidden from god Hiding the stolen goods beneath his tent did not hide his sin from God. I'm sure when Achan did, he was like, I got away with it. No, you didn't, Achan. Luke 8, 17, the front of your worship guide says, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. And not only will he, he, he bring what's hidden in darkness, he will disclose the purposes of the heart. It says, no, uh, Then each will receive his commendation from God. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We may hide sin from those around us. Your Sunday school teacher may not know. Your pastor may not know. But God knows. And in the end, friends, it matters most what he knows. And he's going to deal with it and he's not going to excuse it. There are no exceptions. Number four. It is my sin, but our consequences. I titled the message that because that's what we see in Joshua 7. My sin, but it has an impact on the rest of us. Sin is the epitome of selfishness. As I studied this passage this week, it caused me to realize sin is the epitome of selfishness. What sin is, it's the epitome of saying to God and our families and our churches, I choose me over you. I choose me over you. Every time we sin, that's what you say to God. That's what you say to us. That's what you say to your family. I choose me over you. And so we want to realize that if we're going to do that, It's going to have consequences for all of us. Our individual sin will have corporate ramifications. Uh, There's a TV show. I think it's called Intervention. Is that right? Anyone see that? Intervention deals with addicts, and they range in what they're addicted to. And Tara watches these at night. I think maybe she's setting me up. I don't know. But she, that and hoarders, which I could probably fit in both, I guess. But I'm, I'm giving up honey buns. So... She, uh, we watch this, this show occasionally, and I have not seen a single show that the person who is addicted didn't at least have some impact on at least one family member or one friend. This person is dealing with the addiction, but friends, the ramifications and the consequences are spilling out to family and friends. 
So you must remember, if you choose sin, it affects us. It affects us. My sin, but our consequences. Let me have two more points of application, and we'll move to close. This one, number five, is God's judgment on sin is not too harsh. I want to say a word here because we can see this, and we can see, man, the poor donkey was like, dude, I was just eating grass. How how did I get thrown into this, you know? I mean, just imagine that day. His sheep were like baffled by what was happening, you know? And it was just this amazing process that is taking place. Obviously, the most (laughs) severe uh, is what occurred to his sons and daughters. Uh, I want to remind us of a couple things. One sin deserves the full fury of God's holy wrath. One sin deserves the full fury of God's holy wrath. Number two, that means one sin deserves death. For the wages of sin is death. The cost of sin, the price tag of sin, death. One sin deserves death. And we see here, it says, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel in 7, 1. We've seen in our Revelation passage this morning in 8 and 9 how awful God's judgment is going to be. At the end of this passage, it says this in 726, And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Sin was dealt with, so the Lord turned from his anger. I want to say two things to us then in regard to that. The first one is this. The reason why this is not too harsh is you and I have no idea the depth of grief sin brings to God. We are in no place to say, well, this seems a bit much. We are not the judge of the universe. We are not the holy one of the universe. He alone gets to say what it is as an affront to him and the punishment that comes out with that. Number two, that we should think on. God's anger burned against them because of sin. It says God's anger was turned from them because it was dealt with. Friends, even in this is a picture of the gospel for us. Our sin deserves the full fury of God's wrath. We deserve that face to be poured on us, but there was one who took it for us. Who was it? Jesus. And so the reason that God's anger has turned from those of us who are in Christ today is because we are in Christ, because Christ bore the full consequence, the full judgment, the full wrath. And I would say to us again, flee to Christ or bear the wrath that you will see here for your sin. Flee to the one who has borne it for you or you will bear it. The last point that I would say of application, if God withholds something from us, it's for our best. How many of you know that God loves you? How many of you know as a parent you don't give your children everything they ask for? Is it because you don't love them? No, it's because you love them very much, right? If God withholds something from us, it is for our very best. Who won the battle of Jericho? God. So to whom did the spoils belong? God. Can I show you something in chapter 8? Let's just read in 8.1 and 8.2. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. 
See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. Now that sin has been dealt with, we can progress. And you know that country you went up to, that little village? I'm going to give it to you now. But look at 8.2. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. If Achan had waited one village, if Achan had waited one city, he could have had whatever he wanted. He could have had. But Achan did not trust God to know what was best. Friends, if God withholds or if God gives specific instructions, it's because he's a father who loves us deeply. Can we trust him? Yes. Let's do that and trust that in his good time, he'll give us what he desires us to have. Achan is accusing God of not being generous with his actions. God is overwhelmingly generous to us. So now let me bring this message to a close. We're actually, we'll have a time where we respond. Stephanie's going to lead us in a song this morning. and uh, As we did last week, uh, Dr. David, I'd like for you to come and be available and Kevin to be available. We want to have a chance to respond to this passage and give you a chance to pray in response to what we've encountered here. But let me close then in this way. At my high school graduation, I've shared with you before, but as we walked down the aisle in our school auditorium, I carried a rose. And I sat that rose on an empty chair next to me as we sat down at our graduation ceremony. And the reason that uh, I did that is because my friend uh, Alicia Babin was supposed to sit in that chair. But two weeks before we were to graduate, on a Saturday afternoon there in Leesville, one block from our high school, two blocks from her house, Alicia was hit and killed by a drunk driver at 2 in the afternoon. 2 in the afternoon, he ran a, a, a stop and plowed right into the side of Alicia, and she died right there where the accident occurred. We planted a tree for her that year. I graduated from Leesville in 95. We planted a tree for her uh, there in the front of our property there of the high school. And when we went back to Leesville two weeks ago to visit my grandmother, I drove by and I saw that tree and how big that tree is. And it was a reminder of me, of Alicia, but it was a reminder to me as well of that man's sin and the consequences that it had not only on his life, but on Alicia's life and our life. Don't you know that with that big pile of stones that were heaped up on Achan and all his family and all his stuff, don't you know that every time someone walked by it, it was a reminder, obey God. It was a reminder, trust God. Friends, we're passing by those stones today. We're passing by that tree in Leesville today. And it is a reminder, holiness matters to God. And sin doesn't just have individual consequences. It has corporate consequences. As we move forward in 2011, how many of you want God to move forward with us? How many of you would say, if God doesn't move forward, we don't want to go forward either? How many of us would then say... If there's any sin in my life that would prevent that, I want to deal with it today. I want to deal with it today. If there's any sin in my life that would cause us from being able to progress forward, I want the Lord to take it. The next time you're tempted to sin, I want you to remember two things this week. God hates what I'm about to do. We saw that last week. God hates what I'm about to do. Number two, if I do this, my family and my church will be impacted. My family and my church will be impacted by my disobedience. 
So Aiken was a father, and I want to ask the men in our congregation, dads, how's your leadership this morning? Are you leading your family in holiness or away from it? The consequences of your decisions, how are they playing out on your wife and your children? I wonder this morning if there are some of us who would say, I need to yield completely. God does not want just part. God wants all of me. I wonder if those of us who would hear the warning that I've said in this morning, we need to flee to Christ. We've never yielded our life to Christ as our substitute. There's an opportunity here. There may be some who would say, I want accountability. I want accountability. I'm going to pray for us. Kevin will be here. I'll be here. Dr. David will be here. Stephanie's going to lead us in one song. It's a time to respond. It's a time for us to say, holiness isn't to be played with. It is to be taken serious. Are we the group that takes it serious? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, part of history that occurred long ago and yet still has very relevant ramifications and teachings for us. Father, we want to move forward in 2011, but we don't want to do it without you. And we know that our sin and our obedience or our disobedience plays into this. Father, would you use this passage to remind us we are not just individual sinners. We are in a relationship with you, which makes us in a relationship with one another. And particularly as your church, the images we see of the body. And when one body part is not right or something is wrong with it, it causes ramifications for the rest of the body. Father, would you help us not to be so selfish that we choose sin and say to everyone else, I want me, I want this more than I care for you. God, would you help us not to set our affections on things that aren't worth it? Would you help us to see you for the treasure that you are? Father, would you help Crosspoint to be a church that walks in holiness and that we deal with sin and we don't want it. We want to walk in obedience to you for we understand you're a loving father and your path is for our best. So Father, this morning, would you call dads to be holy leaders? Would you call moms to be holy leaders in their homes? Would you call us to be completely yielded to you and not partly? Would you help us to flee to Christ and not think that we'll be able to bear the curse and judgment for sin ourselves? Father, would you move us to live the things that we've seen here? Help us. Would your spirit apply this passage to our lives? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I'll ask you to stand.